You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens, you can visit our website at citizensbhm.com. All right. I know we got some uh, rule keepers in the crowd and some rule breakers, right? You know, that's kind of a dividing line through all people. Some people see the rules, and depending on how serious they are, they're pretty optional. Others see no rules as optional. Hi, Elena. (laughs) And uh, yeah, some of those people who break all the rules drive those people crazy, you know? And sometimes you marry someone like you, sometimes you marry the opposite. We did an opposite thing. It's working out, so... But if you've ever crashed a party, there's a certain way to do it. (laughs) You got to kind of dress the part. You got to walk in with some confidence, act like you belong, look the part, and then you kind of blend in. You do your best to like have a good time and fit in to, you know, that outdoor wedding at a fancy restaurant or sneaking into a bar or a club. You got to kind of get in the mix, but you don't want to be the center. You don't want to be the center. That's a little too hot. That's a little too much attention. You want to be in like that second, third ring of attention out, but not on the outskirts. That's how you properly enjoy a party crashed. But in this story, we have a woman who's doing the opposite. And she couldn't care less that she's not blending in. She crashes the party and becomes the center of the party and doesn't care at all because the only thing that matters to her is Jesus. And whatever the cost would be to belong to Jesus, to be with Jesus, to touch his feet, nothing else really matters. She's desperate for Jesus, and that's a good thing. The Pharisees were not desperate for Jesus. The religious elites, that's what Pharisee means, religious elite of the Jewish culture, they'd been calling Jesus a friend of sinners in Luke 7, and they meant it as a slur. It's something to say, of course he can't be from God, he can't be a Messiah, he can't be a prophet, he can't be a savior, he can't be, man, he might even be a bad guy. He might even be demon-possessed, they'll eventually get to. Look what they said in verse 34. Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors, people they considered the worst of the worst, and sinners. That's what they called Jesus. And specifically, they're referencing here that he had dinner often with people that the Pharisees considered sinful. To eat a meal in their culture means you're okay, I'm okay, and we're friends. The home is a a private place. There's no security system. There's no reliable policing. So to let someone into your home means we're in this together. We're, we're, We're cool with each other. And Jesus is sitting down to dinner with all sorts of people, and the Pharisees can't stand it. But here we see the kindness of Jesus, that he accepts an invitation from a Pharisee. The very people mocking him the very people slurring God, Jesus sits down at his house, Simon the Pharisee. Indeed, Jesus does dine with sinners. It's hard to think of something more sinful than slurring at God. Verse 36, when one of the Pharisees, Simon, invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house. He doesn't complain. He doesn't push back. He goes and reclines at the table. 
A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume and she stood behind him at his feet weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. The parties crashed. Somehow she's standing behind Jesus, but at his feet, because in their culture, you kind of ate a little bit like this, like a lounge. We don't do this, you know? If I come to your house and do this, tell me to get up and sit in a chair, okay? <laughs> this is what we do in our culture in maybe a therapist's office or like that awkward furniture in like a student center that no one ever uses, but it's there. They're full of lounges. It's from a bygone era. But in their era, if you were to a fancy enough house, you had a table and then kind of like these low couches everywhere and you lounge so that this woman can come up behind Jesus, but yet behind him, but the feet are kind of right there. They're in front of her. And it doesn't say what this woman's sins are. It doesn't. But she knows them. And apparently the whole town does too. And this is a party-stopping, music-cuts-off moment that this notorious woman is now touching Jesus. And what she's doing, she's grabbing this man's feet in worship. You can think of like the Old Testament, them grabbing the horns of the altar to say, save me. This is all I got. It's a bowing down. It's a putting everything, saying, this is all that really matters. And she grasps a hold of him. And he's, she's weeping over his feet so much that she has to let down her hair to wipe his feet. It's an in intense act of personal intimacy, but also grief. That a woman would just say, well, I've given up putting up my hair in their culture because the grief is so great. Or it's an intimate enough space that the hair can be down. These are hardworking Hebrew women that kept their hair up almost always in public life, that they're busy working or in the marketplace or at home. A woman's hair was always up in the presence of, of kind of other people. But in this moment, she says, I need to take my hair down to wipe his feet because either the grief is so great, the intimacy is so great, whatever's happening. And you can imagine in this crowded room at this lounging table that people are just staring at this woman in silence. And her sobs and her wailing are filling the whole house to the point that you can picture that maybe Simon wasn't in the room because he then kind of pops in and has this comment in his heart. You can imagine like pulling the lamb off the grill outside. He has a big dish of roast lamb. He's coming back in and he thinks, oh, oh gosh, what's happening to my party? I know her. I didn't even know about inviting this Jesus, but... Look what's happened now that I'm back in the room. Look what he says in verse 39. When the Pharisee Simon, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself in his heart, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Simon thinks, well, this confirms it. We can dismiss Jesus now. Regardless of the miracles, regardless of, of the, the teaching, regardless of people following him, Jesus is a fraud. 
to let someone like this touch him. And now he's bringing the riffraff in my house. For Simon, it's unthinkable that any sort of holy person would allow a woman like this to touch him. But the truth is, Simon doesn't see rightly. He doesn't see it. Because Jesus isn't made unclean by our sins. We don't make Jesus unclean. Instead, Jesus' holiness, forgiveness, love, compassion, worthiness flows from Jesus to us. We're not saving Jesus by our good behavior. We're not earning Jesus by our good behavior. We come to Jesus in our need and we leave full. We come to Jesus unclean and we leave clean. We come unholy, we leave holy. We come unforgiven and notorious and we leaving belonging to Jesus forever. And notice the text. Simon doesn't say any of this aloud. Just says in his heart. And Jesus puts this man on notice by reading his mind across the room and responding as if they're having a conversation. But notice how gracious our Lord is. Verse 40, Jesus answered him. Hey, Simon, I got something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. Doesn't call him prophet, doesn't call him savior, doesn't call him God, just another rabbi. Tell me, tell me guy who has something to say. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. Think about like a payday loan guy. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. A denarii is one day's wage for a common worker in their society. You would get a coin at the end of the day and said, this is a day's worth of work. So one person owes payday loans two months of work. That amount. The other guy owes 10x that, about two years of wages. But the amounts both matter and don't matter because verse 42, neither of them had any money to pay him back. You can be in debt one denarii or a thousand denarii, but if you ain't got any money to pay him back, you're stuck. So the moneylender forgave the debts of both. It's a surprise move of the story. Lots of people are in debt. Not a lot of moneylenders are passing out forgiveness. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had a bigger debt forgiven. Look at his carefully chosen words of Jesus. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Simon answers and answers right. The Pharisee uses the logic that the one with the greater debt should have a deeper affection for their forgiveness and forgiver. And Jesus highlights his judgment that neither person can pay, but the one in more debt experiences a greater relief and a forgiveness of debt. And what Jesus is doing, he's telling the story like a boxer to get our guy Simon against the ropes, to put him a little bit into the boxing corner, not to hurt him, not to trick him, but to make sure this, this gospel punch actually lands in his heart, not an argument. 
Jesus actually loves us enough and is gracious enough to meet us where we are and make sure we drop the gloves enough to hear. He's warming them up with a story of saying, all right, you told me what was true, and now I'm going to tell you why this is the same situation. And it's also true. Verse 44, and then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, imagine the awkwardness of this. He's staring at this woman behind him while talking to Simon across the room. This is Jesus in a loud voice. The whole room can hear him, but he's not even looking at Simon. He's staring at this woman who's weeping and probably recovering from this moment of intense worship and meeting of Jesus. Verse 44, he turned towards the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. It's so quick, you can almost miss it, but Jesus starts it with, Simon, do you see her? Do you really see her? This woman has a name. This woman is a person. She's not just her reputation. Do you see what's going on, Simon? Because it's easy to miss what's really going on in our life when we're too busy judging everyone else. It's really easy to be the critic instead of a companion of Jesus. And Jesus wants Simon to see her and not just see her, but see her hospitality contrasting his lack of hospitality shows she loves God and he don't. As religious elite, as much as the Bible as he's memorized, he ain't got it. He's missed the boat altogether. But this woman got it. In our culture, a good host as a part of hospitality, kind of shakes the hands of the guests, gives a little hug, maybe a little pounds, maybe a little dap, whatever it is. Takes your coat, maybe points you where the bathroom might be, maybe gets you something to drink. That's good hosting in our culture. In Jesus's time, you offered water for their feet, you greeted them with a kiss on the cheek, just a little peck right there, and then you gave them a little oil to clean up. And Jesus says, Simon, you didn't do any of this. You invited me to your house, and it kind of highlights the dubiousness of the invite. Are they pulling Jesus close to make fun of him? To continue in their doubts? To hope something like this happens so we can finally write them off? Points out that, Simon, you don't care that I'm here really at all. And this woman couldn't care more. Jesus says, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Remember, feet were disgustingly dirty. Open-toed sandals all day, every day, every day that ends in a Y, 365. Jesus is in a traveling ministry. Showers, not regular, you know, filth in the streets, not a sanitation system that's working so well. To have feet and dirty feet walking around was a gross affair, so much so that when you came to someone's house, they would have a bowl of water, if they had enough money, a bowl of water and a little bench. 
you can kind of imagine this ritual of entering someone's space. But there was no bowl. Simon couldn't spare a bowl for his guests. But this woman pours out her tears to clean Jesus's feet. How much do you have to cry to clean a pair of feet of a grown man? This isn't a couple tears, it's a flood, fam. This woman is letting it all out. And this woman's hospitality is an act of desperation for Jesus, but also a declaration of love. She's not grossed out. She wants to be with him no matter what. Jesus says, you gave me so, no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased kissing my feet. You've not anointed my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. They were given oil in a house back then to help rub the dirt off your face. That you would be ready to be kind of in close contact, eating at a table. You'd rub the oil to push the dirt. You maybe get a rag or something like that. You'd rub it through your hair. It would be like a freshen up moment to say, hey, be present with me. Let's, let's, we're, we're here, right here together. Let's be ready to talk. And we realize through all this that Simon is the host who's not really a host. And the woman is the host who's not even a guest. She's the party crasher because she's desperate for Jesus. And we must pay attention and learn kind of three points and take them to heart before we go any further. And the first point is this, is when you realize your sin, when you have a moment when you go, Ooh, God is holy, I'm not, what do you do? Follow this woman. Run, don't walk to Jesus. Run. Go for Jesus. Don't hide, don't pretend, don't do anything else. Run to the only person in the universe who can help you. We tend to hide and pretend and perform and avoid Jesus when we sin, and that's just sin doubling down in us. There's actually only one person who can help you with your sin, and he's the safest guy in the world for a sinner. Do you notice that as much as we fear like that prayer time or fear coming back to Jesus or fear exposing our sin to God or others? That's the actual only way to healing. More money, eating more, getting someone's approval, that's not gonna work. Doing good deeds, you're not gonna balance the scales. You can't pay back the debts. But there's a Jesus who welcomes sinners. Every single sinner gets a welcome party from Jesus. He came for us. He didn't come to call the righteous, but to call the sinners. He's the doctor. He's the savior. He's the one. The even people who are mocking him and maybe setting him up for a party to slam him. He just sits on down and takes the time to say, let me tell you a story and then let me show you an example and then let me preach to you and invite you too, Simon, to follow me. But you're gonna have to probably follow the way this woman does, the one you don't know her name. We often hide and run and minimize and pretend and perform, but church, run to God. A spiritually healthy person lives in a cycle of greater desperation for Jesus and increasing awareness of their sin, awareness of your need, and increasing desperation for Jesus, followed by a deeper satisfaction in Jesus. Your greater desperation for Jesus actually drives a deeper satisfaction for Jesus. And as you grow satisfied in Jesus, you don't grow less desperate. You eventually grow more desperate, which makes you more satisfied in Jesus. It's an endless cycle. That's what Christian maturity looks like. 
that we grow up to need Jesus more than ever and become more satisfied in him than ever. Psalm 42 is so instructional here. It's a favorite. It says, as a deer pants for water, oh, my soul pants for you. You're to be like a deer heaving by a stream, can't wait to take a drink. That is what the maturity looks like. The second thing to take away from this portion is when you rightly, rightfully are desperate, you don't care about what anybody else thinks. She's unworried about what these people think of her devotion to Jesus. She's not worried about their stares. She's not worried about their gossip. She's not worried about their whispers, not worried about their silly party. When we find our approval in Jesus, the tendency of our people-pleasing, the tendency of our seeking others' approval just starts to melt. When you have the approval of the God of the universe by belonging to him, suddenly Galatians 1 becomes true that you don't seek the approval of others. You don't have to have it. And this woman's willing to crash the party and burst the doors. The third lesson is being acted out. That when we belong to Jesus, when we seek him with desperation, how we evaluate money or the things of this world changes. And you might say, wait, what, Justin? There's nothing about money in this passage. Well, that alabaster jar she breaks and pours out on Jesus's feet is likely very pricey. And another story in the Gospels, a jar that's probably very similar is an entire year's worth of wages. An entire year. Two, three hundred denarii. And she breaks it to anoint Jesus's feet. And they had these things because common people didn't have banks back then. So you kept like kind of little treasures, little things you could hide in your house or keep around as the family savings, kind of like shoes or purses or jewelry or collectibles today. But this woman happily breaks the jar when coming to Jesus because this is now the most important thing in her life. Is it all of her savings? Is it most? Is it some? I don't know, but I do know this woman doesn't seem too worried about money or her future anymore because she's found true value in Jesus and a true future with Jesus. That holding on to the things of this world suddenly doesn't seem all that important. And now the tables have been turned on Simon. He's been a bad host. He's full of opinions. He's failed to serve God himself chilling at his table, which is wild to think about. Whereas this woman's been too busy to serve Jesus to care about the host's opinion at all. And I want you to consider this scene. Jesus has been staring at this woman the whole time while talking to Simon over here. And I want you to imagine the intensity of a silent party, crowded in the room, stunned by what's happening, quietly breathing in an entire jar of perfume being dumped out. And they're all waiting to say, what will Jesus say? After highlighting his terrible hospitality, praising the virtues of the woman they all look down upon, what's coming next? Because it's the gospel punch to the guy on the ropes. Verse 47, therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. 
But whoever has been forgiven, little loves little. The woman's loving service of Jesus shows she's experiencing the loving forgiveness of Jesus. Conversely, Simon's lack of love and hospitality shows his lack of forgiveness from God. That it's not just a mistake in hospitality, but Jesus saying this is a biggest heart issue that could be. That you think you have no sin, so you have no forgiveness to go seek from me. This woman's aware of her sin and has run to me. And it's transformed her so much that she don't care about your opinion. Her world is being reevaluated and all she wants to do is worship me. She's the forgiven debtor with the greater debt. Therefore, the greater experience of God's love. And here's the truth, church. You will never feel Christ's love unless you see your need to be loved. You will never feel Christ's forgiveness until you see your need to be forgiven. You will never feel Christ's healing in your life until you see that you're sick. Church, it's not about the size of our sins, for our Savior is always greater than any of our failures. You don't have to maximize your sins to experience the love of God. You have to see that God is enormously holy and that any of your sins are a huge problem to God. Whether you think your pile is 50 denarii or 500 denarii, the truth is it's more like 5 billion denarii for all of us. I don't care if you're Mother Teresa or a sinner like me, we stand guilty before God apart from Jesus. And this is blowing Simon's mind. He had a whole world that's built on what he does, makes him good before God. Because the greatest sin is not what we've done, but our greatest sin is a failure to see our need and believe in Jesus. The sin of unbelief is the sin. Nothing is more dangerous or more offensive to God than our denying of our need for him. Nothing. And we usually deny our need for God in one of two ways, and it's actually playing out in the story. It's a, it's a picture for us. We deny our need for God by getting religious, like Simon, and by our good works, we compare ourselves as favorably better than others and eventually see little need for God because our focus is ultimately on us and what we do and that we're better than whoever them is. That's one way to deny your need from God, get super religious. Second way is to get irreligious or rebellious, like this woman lived. And rebellious people realize somewhere along the lines that if God is judging by our goodness, we have no shot, so they just give up. They just go, if this is the game, if it's about what I do and it's about me getting it all right, well, I've already blown it, so let's double down and I'm gonna live for the world. And so you see, really religious people and really rebellious people, they're not all that different. One says, ultimately, I'm gonna live by me and my goodness. The other one says, it ain't gonna work by me, so I'm gonna live for the goodness of the world, even if it's evil and sin. And they both take you to empty, empty places. They both break your heart over and over and over and again and might make you pretty wicked along the way. 
But here's the truth, church. Jesus takes religious and irreligious people and says, come sit down at my table. There's room for you and I can change your story in an instant. All of this woman's shame that apparently the whole town knew about is changed in a blink of an eye. Her story becomes a story of what Jesus has done, not what she's done. And the same can be true of you. Whether you grew up the church going three times a week or whether this is your first day in church ever, it don't matter. Jesus invites you to come. Jesus invites you to come and be desperate for him and find deep satisfaction in Christ alone. And finally, Jesus gives his first words to the woman. We're, we're in the back three verses of the story. After staring at her for however many minutes this interaction's gone on, he finally, looking her in the eyes, says, verse 48, then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus speaks to the very heart of their encounter. She's here because she knows he's God and she needs forgiveness. He knows. She never asked for anything, but Jesus knows and she exercises faith in Jesus by coming to him. Love and hospitality of the wiping hair and the tears and the perfume, all that's just an overflow of a heart forgiven, a heart that's free, a heart that's being renewed. It doesn't save her, but it's evidence that her heart is changing. And that's why we love hospitality here at Citizens. Because when we serve God in beautiful ways, at our, in our homes, inviting people to our homes, at work, you can be a host at work, even if you're not the boss. In the neighborhood, serving in City Kids or worship or CG leagues or Sunday or whatever. It shows the world a heart that's been renewed by God. If you're new to Christianity or don't yet believe, consider what everyone's doing here. We're in a basement. It's 9 a.m. The AC like sort of works most of the time. Promise. I remember that was the witness. The first time I heard about Jesus, my parents' marriage was falling apart. My, 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 my dad brought us to a Pentecostal church plant in a gymnasium, and it was hot there too. Maybe there's a theme in my life. And I don't really remember the sermon, but I remember being about like 10, 11 and be like, there's like a hundred serious adults yelling to Jesus. I didn't even have a really a concept of worshiping him. But I was like, look at all these people. What are they doing here unless there's a God who's done something? So my challenge is the same. Would you consider the God that's done something and invites people to him? That's my story. God invited me to him. And I believe he's inviting you too. She leaves in peace, and her story's on a new path, a new trajectory. But with Simon, we're left not knowing what his response is, but it's not looking great. And the crowd of guests start whispering. Maybe they're yelling, maybe they're arguing eventually, and why are they doing this? Well, other prophets in the Bible's history had done miracles, and Jesus has dropped a ton of miracles here in Luke. But none of the prophets of the Old Testament ever said something like they forgive sins. One is empowered by God to do a miracle. 
The other to say you forgive sins is saying, I am God. I am on the judge's chair. I do have the authority to grant you eternal life, which makes the woman no longer the scandal at the party. The scandal is that God is lounging at a table, eating lamb and grapes or whatever. And furthermore, that the God who's lounging at the table actually doesn't just associate with sinners, but loves them. Loves Simon and the woman. The story is often called a sinful woman forgiven in its little added on title at the top. And maybe a better title would be dinner with two sinners, dinner with two debtors, or maybe even Jesus forgives desperate people. Jesus saves desperate people because desperate people see Jesus for who he is and realize their great need of him. There is more grace and more love in Jesus's pinky finger than all the failures and sins of the world combined. He's not running out of forgiveness for you. Your sins are not too much for him, no matter how notorious you are or how stuck up you are like Simon. When you are not regularly desperate for God, or as Jesus says in the gospels, regularly hungry, regularly thirsty for God, I wanna tell you, church, especially in the South, you are in grave danger. If you ain't hungry for God and not hungry and thirsty for him and his righteousness, not desperate from God, you are in danger of not seeing your sin as wicked, not in danger of not seeing Christ as holy, in danger of not seeing the beauty of the gospel, in danger of missing why Jesus would die on a cross for you, in danger of living for a world that truly will not satisfy, in danger of settling for self-righteousness that judges everyone else but yourself, danger of thinking you know it all when you don't even know the depths of your own sin before God. There couldn't be a more dangerous thing to be indifferent than Jesus. It's a dangerous thing to not be desperate. And Simon couldn't see God who was in his house. They're like two feet away and he's missing God. A guy who taught the Old Testament, he's missing God because our maturity isn't measured by the vastness of our knowledge, but by our nearness and desperation and satisfaction in Jesus. That's how you're growing up in your faith. Knowledge sure helps. Knowledge applied is wonderful. The closer I get to Jesus, the clearer I see my sins. The closer I get to Jesus, the clearer I see my sins and the stronger conviction I have of God's peace and love in my soul. It works like this. It's like interlocking hands. When I really know my sins and I go to God and feel his grace, comfort, peace, it's like my two hands pulling together and making each other tougher and tougher and stronger. When I stop seeing my sins, it's like one hand just letting go of the rope. When I stop receiving God's forgiveness, maybe I feel very weighty and condemned and, and, and these things, but I, I don't grasp hold of the grace. I don't go to God. It's like letting go of the other side. But when the hands interlock, they actually become stronger and tighter and a deeper experience of God. 
My hope for you citizens, my hope for myself, my hope for my family and my children is that you would become more desperate for Jesus and more satisfied in Jesus as the cycle until your very last breath on earth. And that that would make you deeply strong, not in yourself, but in the only strong one. They called Jesus the friend of sinners as a slur, and they're right. And that's the best news in the history of the world to sinners like us. Verse 34 again, look at him. Take the advice of the Pharisees mocking him. Look at him. Look at Jesus. Read chapter 7 again when you get home. Look at him. Look at Jesus, a glutton and a drunkard, a man of the people. He's not actually drunk. He's not actually a glutton. That's their way of trying to mock him that he eats with the common people. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's the best news in the world. If you can see yourself as a sinner in need of a great savior. We see chapter 8 kind of spills out in those first verses, just listing all sorts of people, men, women, all sorts of people. And the conclusion is, will you follow them too? All sorts of people said yes then. Even some Pharisees in the end would say yes to Jesus and follow. Whether you find yourself like the woman or find yourself like Simon, I bid you come and follow a merciful Jesus who can forgive you of your sins that he died on the cross for and rose again proving he was God, securing our forgiveness forever, and leading us to life everlasting. 